When C.S. Lewis was a teenager, he became an atheist. He uh, abandoned the family Christianity. And he maintained, he wrote later, a firm belief in the inexistence of God. He eventually came uh, to become a professor at Oxford University and taught there. And when he was there, he met some friends. One of them was J.R.R. Tolkien. By the way, we have the president of the J.R.R. Tolkien fan club here. He's right back there. Uh, he doesn't like to be called a groupie, though. So. But uh, Lewis met Tolkien, among other people, and they would have long discussions about many things, about uh, literature, about writing, about ancient writing and myths and uh, religion and even Christianity. Tolkien was a devout Catholic. And in one of their discussions, Tolkien uh, asked Lewis, did he enjoy the myths, the ancient myths, the myths of uh, gods coming down to earth and sacrificing themselves? And Lewis said that he did. He did enjoy those myths. And then Tolkien asked Lewis, well, why didn't he enjoy the myth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's what Lewis believed the incarnation was, was a myth. In fact, that was the obstacle for him to becoming a Christian. Well, when Tolkien asked that question, that that stopped Lewis. And that made him think. But it was another couple of years when a couple days after another one of their long discussions, and this discussion went on until 3 in the morning, but it was after that discussion, two days after, that Lewis wrote, I have just passed from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ in Christianity. Later, Lewis wrote in his book, God in the Dock, Now as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from heaven, the heaven of legend and imagination, to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a balder or an Osiris dying nobody knows when or where to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now, I think most of us who uh, have come to... uh, belief in Jesus Christ didn't do so with a struggle about whether or not the incarnation was true or not. But the idea of the incarnation, when you think about it, if you consider it, if we're honest, I think for most of us, it would perplex us. How does God become man? J.I. Packer, and I might be considered a Packer groupie, In his classic book, Knowing God, speaks of the things that sometimes make it hard to believe Christianity. Things like miracles, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the atonement, and the resurrection. Sometimes these are things that make it hard for people to come to Christianity. But Packer says this. But in fact, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of crucifixion, of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, 
and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here, in the thing that happened at that first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. Let's pray. Father God, we do marvel, and I think maybe sometimes we might even shake our heads at this idea of the Incarnation, at this idea of God becoming flesh. But we rejoice, Father, in the fact that it happened. And we rejoice in the fact, Father, that because of the Incarnation, we can become your children. So as we go through your word today, Father, help us to come a little bit closer to understanding what happened with the Incarnation, to come a little closer to understanding the meaning of the Incarnation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to talk about briefly is the reason for the Incarnation. Um, Theologians, I think, sometimes get excited about stuff like the Incarnation. They like to, you know, niggle at, at, at points and, 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 and uh, minute things, and, and they, uh, they love to do those kinds of things. But when it comes to the Incarnation, sometimes theologians talk about um, whether the Incarnation was fortuitous or necessary. The idea of being it fortuitous is the idea that Christ, motivated by love, came to earth, and it was fortuitous for us that he did so. But I, and I suppose there is some truth in that, but Christ was certainly motivated by his love for us, but we can't, I think, go much past talking about the incarnation without talking about the fact that it was necessary. It was necessary because Adam and Eve sinned. And they rejected God. And in doing so, they estranged themselves and all of the human race from God. It was necessary because each of us have sinned. And in sinning, we separate ourselves from God. Without the incarnation, there's no hope for the separation and the estrangement to be repaired. Hebrews 2.10 says this, For it was fitting that he for whom uh, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The Greek word there for fitting means proper or suitable. For God, it was correct. It was proper. It was even necessary that the incarnation happen. It was the only way for salvation. A few verses later, in verses 14 and 15, the writer says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. The Incarnation, that innocuous Christmas event, at the time known only to Mary and Joseph Joseph and a few lowly shepherds, is what made salvation possible. 
You know, we spent 14 weeks in 1 John. 14 weeks to cover five chapters, 101 verses. And John in that letter was focused on the idea of making his readers see and understand that it was Jesus, that it was Jesus Christ who had come in the flesh, that he became incarnated for us. But when we speak of the incarnation, we must go to the first chapter of John's gospel. So let's go there. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made, excuse me, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John asserts, first of all, that the Logos is God. He does that in these 66 words. And as we look at this short passage, there are several points I think that are important to note. First, he says that in the beginning was the Word. Of course, I think it's obvious that John was thinking about Genesis 1-1 when he says, "God in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. Before there was creation, the Creator God existed. The Word existed. John is saying that whenever and wherever Genesis was, the Logos was as well. The Logos was not a supplement or an addition. The Logos was at the beginning. This is the eternity of the Logos. Still in verse 1, John says the Logos was with God. This speaks of the personality or the personhood of the Logos. By the way, Logos is the Greek word for word (laughs) that's used here. That Greek word, that Greek phrase, when it talks, says the Logos was with God, we can read it this way. The word was toward God, or the word was face to face with God. And that emphasizes the personality of the Logos and his relationship with God. And while Genesis 1-1 doesn't define the second person of the Godhead, he was there. The Logos was there, interacting with the Trinity in the beginning. The Logos was intimately involved with everything that happened in Genesis 1. And when God said, let there be light, for example, it was the Logos. It was the word that said those words and all the words of creation. Still in verse 1, John says, the Logos was God. This is God's, this is the deity of the Logos. The Greek says what God was, the Logos was. The Logos was and is fully and completely God, the same God, equal to God, yet distinct, fully divine in himself. And we jump down to verse 3. John says, all things were made through him. John asserts that the Logos does what only God can do, and that is create. The Logos is creator. All things were made through him, that is, he is the source of creation, the only source that of, of anything that was made. Colossians 1.16 puts it this way, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And we jump down to verse 4. John says, In him was life. The Greek word John uses here for life is the word zoe, which in John's gospel always means eternal life. The logos is eternal life. 
Later in John's Gospel, we learn this eternal life is available to men and women. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's the point, isn't it? Do you believe this? Do you believe that the Logos has eternal life within himself and he, and he has made it available to you? That's the question that everyone has to face. Eternal life is in the Logos and it is his to give, John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then John says, moreover, this life was the light of men. The Logos is revelation. It is well and good for the personal Logos to be God and to be creator and even to have eternal life in himself, but that would be of no consequence if it wasn't revealed. And it has all been revealed by the holder of eternal life, the Logos, the Word, the personal, the Logos, who is God. So John says all this in the first four verses, and then in verse 5 he makes one more point, not specifically about the Word, or about the Logos, but about the outcome of the light coming into the world. He says the light shines, present tense. He says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or overtaken it. So think for a moment. Think about a time that I imagine all of us have had at one point or another to think about the world and life in the world and our life in the world. And if we do that, if we take the time to do that, if we take the time to be honest about it, I think we have to accede to the fact that there's something wrong with the world. I mean, we say with some frequency, the world is getting worse. And that's true. But if we think along those lines, the next thought may be this, that there's something wrong with me. We don't usually say that out loud. But it's there. Then comes the thought that no matter what I do or how good a life I live, I cannot repair the thing that is wrong. I can't repair or fix the thing that is missing. That's, that's what it was with me. As I came closer and closer to accepting Jesus Christ, I, I looked around my life and it was a shambles. My family life was a mess. I was a mess. And I was laying in my bed one night, and I'm going, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm completely powerless. I have nothing within me that can fix what's going on around me or even fix me. God used that in part to help me come to him. John holds out the idea, though, that there is something else, someone else, to look toward to, to repair whatever that thing is that is broken to overcome the darkness, and it always prevails. So the Logos is God. The Word is God. The Logos became flesh. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. First thing John asserts here is that the word, the Logos, Jesus, God, became flesh. 
flesh in the New Testament, the word flesh in the New Testament can mean many things. It can mean, you know, the meat of a person or an animal. It can mean the, the, uh, uh, the physical body of a person. It can also refer to human nature, particularly the propensity of humans to sin. But John here uses the word to refer to a human person. And that is the point. Jesus became a human person without the loss of deity. The Logos is God incarnated. And this is astonishing, as we talked about earlier. It's no wonder C.S. Lewis thought that the incarnation was a myth. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to grasp. It's not the Greek idea of a God uh, mating with a human and producing something that was part human and part God, like Hercules. The Logos, John says, is fully God, became fully human. So what does that mean? I can't, and I don't think anybody can, uh, tell you the mechanism that took place to make this happen. (laughs) Can't do that. But we can talk a little bit about what happened with the Incarnation. So what does it mean? We wrestle with the notion, we have trouble with it, but Paul gives us a clue about what happened at the Incarnation. While writing to the Philippians, Paul was talking about the attitude that they should have toward one another. And he uses the example of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a whole lot in this passage that we could unpack, but I do want to focus on this idea that Christ emptied himself. What did Jesus empty himself of? Let's try to think through this a little bit. Let's look at the life of Christ. And we look at the life of Christ, we see, for example, Christ being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus, when touched by a woman who was bleeding, the woman touched the hem of his robe, and when that happened, Jesus said, Who touched me? Doesn't Jesus know? And we see Jesus saying that he didn't even know when his, the time of his second coming would be. Jesus suffered hunger. Jesus suffered thirst. Jesus suffered loss. Jesus wept. This is all very human. But we also see Jesus with supernatural knowledge. We see him multiplying food to feed thousands. We see him turn water into wine. We see him heal people of all kinds of physical infirmities. We see him cast out demons. We even see him grant supernatural power to the disciples to preach the kingdom of God, to heal people, and to cast out demons. We see Jesus raise people from the dead. This is all deity. So we see both Jesus fully human and fully divine in his incarnation. We even see the human and the divine together. In close proximity, Matthew eight twenty three through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves. But he was asleep. He was tired. He was sleeping. Very human. Verse 25, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. That's deity. Verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
Well, that's the question, isn't it? What sort of man is this? This is the Logos, both man and God in one person. So maybe that helps us a little bit with our question. But again, we ask, what did Jesus empty himself of? Well, clearly, he didn't empty himself of the powers of deity. But just as clearly, Jesus experienced human limitations. We need to know that the limits put on Jesus in his humanity were by, were by his choice and the choice of the Father. Three quick verses from John. John five nineteen. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.28, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I can do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus submitted himself to the will and authority of the Father. His human limitations were the choice he made in his submission to the Father. So that answers one aspect of the question. But again, what of the emptying? Jesus gives us the answer to that. When Jesus prayed what is called the high priestly prayer in John 17, this is just before uh, his arrest and crucifixion, in part he prayed this, John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What Jesus emptied himself of, what he gave up, you will, is his glory. He emptied himself of his glory and the position he had with the Father in order to, if you will, to take up the position of being found in the form of a servant and in the likeness of you and me and being fully obedient in that. So that's what he emptied himself of. And then John says, the Logos lived among us. The ESV says that the Logos dwelt among us. The NET says that he took up residence among us. Both those phrases translate the one Greek word meaning tabernacle or tent. When I think about that, I I, I think of an image of someone going out camping. It wouldn't be me. I don't camp outside. I always camp in hotels and things. But it makes me think of a person going out camping and setting up their tent out there in the woods, in the wilderness. And then it makes me think about Jesus coming and setting up his tent next to theirs to be with them and to fellowship with them and to talk with them. But I think what John was referring to when he used that word was the the tabernacle. Exodus forty thirty four. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We talked before that the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle or later filling the temple was God's presence there. His desire for his presence in the tabernacle was to be with his people and to bless them. It was to be the place where God would have a relationship with his people. When the Logos, when Jesus tabernacled among us, among John and the disciples and there and the people there. It was where he wanted to be. And he desired to dwell among them and to dwell among us in blessing as he did with the tabernacle. That's his desire. 
Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's God's desire. And then John says we saw his glory. He says that we saw the glory of the one and only. That phrase, one and only, is a unique description of Christ found only in John's gospel. I think it's found four times there. Older versions of the Bible tend to say that, uh, that to translate that phrase, the only begotten or the only begotten son. But the meaning of the Greek word translated one and only speaks more about uniqueness than sonship. Jesus is the one and only, singularly unique, the only one, the only ever one, one of a kind son of God. The writer of Hebrew uses this word when, he, when speaking of Isaac, Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had, been, who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Well, we know Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. In fact, Ishmael was Abraham's first son. But Isaac was the son of promise. God had promised Abraham that a great nation would come through him through a, his own offspring, and Isaac was that offspring, and Isaac was the son of promise. So in that way, he was the one and only son of Abraham. Jesus emptied himself of the glory in position with the Father, yet John saw the glory of the one and only. I expect John was thinking certainly of the transfiguration when he said that, but I also think he was thinking about everything Jesus said and did. How amazing would it have been to be with Jesus, to hear all the things he said and all the things he taught and watch all the things he did. John saw that as Jesus' glory. And then John talks about grace and truth. Still in verse 14, John saw and experienced the grace and truth of the Logos. The truth Jesus brought was the truth about God and about sin and about redemption. And about our need for his grace. The grace Jesus brought was the grace that offers us forgiveness of sin. And the promise of eternal life with the Father. His grace offers us a way out of that nagging feeling that we talked about earlier. That there's something wrong with me. His grace is the fix to what is broken in our lives. And having accepted the grace of salvation, we experience what John says in verse 16 in chapter 1 here. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Some versions say, says grace on top of grace. There's the grace of being adopted into God's family. There's the grace of, being, of having the fruit of the Spirit. There's the grace of being wel- welcomed into God's presence. There's the grace of being of unhindered prayer. There's the grace of abiding in Christ and receiving spiritual nourishment from him. There's the grace of God's daily protection and blessing. There's the grace of of the power to resist the enemy. There's the grace of being freed from sin, not just being forgiven, but no longer being dominated by sin, and so on. I suppose you could write your own list of grace that you've received. And then in verse 18, John says that the Logos made God known. And in that verse, John says that no one has seen God. Of course, Moses, Isaiah, and others had seen God, at least in limited ways. But I think John here is using the word seen to mean completely seen, 
not partially, not for a moment, but in full sight. And look what John says and how he communicates this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side has made him, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, meaning the Father. The only God, meaning the Son, who is at the Father's side has made him, the Father, known. John not only reasserts Jesus' deity, he also asserts that to encounter Jesus is to encounter God the Father. Jesus himself reflects this, John 14, 8 through 10. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. The writer of Hebrews concurs. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When Jesus says, abide in me, it's God who's saying that. When Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, it's the Father who's speaking. When Jesus says to pray for workers for the harvest, it's God who's giving the directions. This is not to say that Jesus and God are somehow mushed together in sort of a nebulous, not quite sure which person is which person. It is to say, however, that their relationship is so close, and because they are both God, that what they say and do is what they both say and do. So that's the incarnation. What does it mean? Well, let me survey real quickly what it means for some people in the New Testament. The meaning of the incarnation for the prophetess Anna, who saw the infant Jesus, meant that meant for her redemption for Jerusalem. For Simeon, who also saw the infant Jesus, the incarnation meant salvation as a light for the Gentiles and a glory for his people Israel. For Herod, the incarnation meant a threat to his power and a reason to murder. For Mary, the incarnation meant that she had a personal Savior and that God fulfilled his promise. For John the Baptist, the incarnation meant that Jesus was God's lamb to take away the sins of the world. For the scribes, the incarnation meant healing and forgiving sins were blasphemy. For Paul, among many other things, the incarnation meant believers are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And having been predestined, believers are called, justified, and glorified. So that's just a few people from the New Testament and what it meant to them. What does it mean for us? I'd like you to consider three things. I think the first thing that it means for us is this idea of temple or tabernacle. In the revelation of who God is through the person of Jesus Christ, we have what God has always wanted for his creation. 
his creation of us. He wants to be with us. He wants to have a relationship with believers. He was personally with Adam and Eve in the garden. You might remember in Genesis 3 that it talks about that God was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. What a magnificent experience that would have been for Adam and Eve to sit with God every afternoon and to talk, to fellowship. God was with his people, the Jews, in the tabernacle and then in the temple. He is now with all believers personally through the Holy Spirit that Christ has given us to dwell in us, to tabernacle with us. He is with all believers, uh, excuse me, he has also made believers individually into his temple. And he's made believers together into his temple. And remember, the temple, the tabernacle, is where God resides. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Secondly, I think it has to do with the incarnation, the meaning of the incarnation has to do with being poor and rich. And Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians about their need to participate in uh, contributing to the needs of the saints in Judea, Paul makes a statement about the incarnation. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul here not only states the fact of the incarnation, but also shows the impact of the incarnation. It is by God's grace, by the grace of Jesus, that Jesus became poor so that we might, we might become rich in salvation and in blessing. Paul shows this example of how we can extend the grace of Christ to others by being willing to give ourselves as Christ gave for us. And then one more thing. American pie. I'm not talking about cherry pie or apple pie. I'm talking about the song, and if you're about my age, you probably remember a song called American Pie. <clears throat> you may have even uh, rocked out to it a few times. The song was written by Don McLean, and he wrote it, and it, the catalyst for the writing of the song had to do with the uh, tragic plane crash and death of three uh, late 50 rock, late 50s rock and rollers. One was a guy named J.P. Richardson, who became known as the Big Bopper, most of you are going, what? Big what? Another person who died in that crash was a guy named Richie Valens, who wrote the song, performed the song La Bamba. And then the third person was Buddy Holly. So that was the catalyst for the song. At the time, uh, Don McLean was uh, a young teenager. And then he grew up. He grew up through the 60s. And as he wrote this song, he initially wrote this song, I think, to decry the decline of American music. In fact, he, he referenced the, the day of that plane crash when those three men were killed as the day the music died. But as he goes on in the song, you realize that he's not just talking about music. He's talking about American culture and American ideals and American virtues. And he saw all that in decline, which is, makes a lot of sense when you think of what happened in the 60s, the sexual so-called sexual revolution and the the uh, 
denunciation of authority of, of any kind, the assassinations of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Bob Kennedy. So he lived through that. And so his song was about the decline of America. There's a picture of the album cover there. And I'd like to read for you uh, the last portion of the song, and I promise I'm not going to sing it. And I, and I do want to emphasize the song is not a Christian song. Um, as far as I know, Don McLean's not a Christian. Uh, we won't be singing it next week in worship. I don't think. I don't, you know. <laughs> Never know what Nate may do. Let me read this, and I promise not to sing. He said, I met a girl who sang the blues, and I asked her for some happy news. But she just smiled and turned away. And I went down to the sacred store where I heard the music years before. But the man there said the music wouldn't play. The line there about um, the music not playing was not just a reference to music, but it was a reference again to the culture. He asked the girl for happy news, and she couldn't give it to him. And then he says, in the streets, the children screamed, the lovers cried, and the poets dreamed. But not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken. I think McLean was saying that things had gotten so bad that even the church had become silent. And then he says this. And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. I think McLean was saying that things had gotten so bad that the culture had declined so precipitously that from his point of view, even God said, no, that's it. I'm done. I'm going on vacation. I don't know how much of the song Don McLean got right. Um, I'm not a music critic and I'm not a critic of culture. But I do do know that he got that last part wrong. Don McLean says that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost abandoned us, took off. But I know that's not true. And the reason I know that's not true is because of the incarnation. I know it's not true because God became flesh. I know that while McLean believed that God abandoned us, Jesus Christ came to us. That's the incarnation. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The reason for the incarnation was that we might be saved. The meaning of the incarnation is that God, having saved, can be with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the incarnation. Jesus, thank you for choosing to leave your place with the Father, to leave your glory with the Father, to become one of us. It baffles the mind. It, it boggles the mind. It, it's, it's something that's not understandable. And yet you've done it. And yet you have shown us your love by doing so. And you have shown us that this is the way to salvation. And you've shown us, Father, that 
is because of what Jesus did that you can fulfill your desire and your promise to be with us. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.